to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to the School of Wellbeing Best of 2023 series. In today's episode, I have the joy of chatting with Andrew Fuller about the changes we're seeing in the way students approach life and the impact it's having on teacher wellbeing. This episode was so popular with teachers and each time I went to schools after this podcast was live, they wanted to talk to me about it. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Andrew Fuller. Andrew, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Today, we're going to be talking about student behaviour and how that impacts teacher wellbeing. What do you hope teachers will gain from listening to this conversation? Well, I hope they actually get a bit of a survival guide, really. I think it's incredibly difficult. And of course, we often expect that they can do incredibly great things. And of course, they can. But at the same time, the cost is enormous. And I'm tired of having a world in which the teacher's well-being is the collateral damage of a successful school or classroom. I'm sure teachers are cheering as they hear this, Andrew, because I think that's the paradigm in which we've been working is that we give and give and give and give until there is literally nothing left. So I'm really curious to know, what shifts are you seeing when it comes to student behaviour? The shifts that are uh, most evident really are the long-term aftermath of the pandemic lockdowns, really. So that essentially what we see is a a developmental delay in terms of behaviour, particularly not so much in intellectual capacity, but in terms of behaviour, so that our year eights are probably really our year fives, you know, and and so on. We can kind of backtrack them a bit. So, and of course, our school structures aren't set up that way. They're sort of set up for the maturity of a year eight, uh, as it is, rather than thinking about how do we kind of in some ways, wrap ourselves around these kids as younger than they, you know, perhaps their chronological years, because they haven't had the, the sort of social interactions and some of the challenges that they have needed to have to develop. I mean, we all know from Piaget's work that basically assimilation and accommodation is driven by difficulties or challenges. And so as much as we don't like challenges and problems, they're actually good for us because they help us to grow in an intellectual sense, but also in our sense and in terms of our personality. And by being stuck at home and by sometimes being cared for by your family, which is a lovely thing, and not necessarily facing some of the social issues that you need to, you're a bit behind the the eight ball, really. And so teachers are trying to catch up with the learning stuff, but finding it almost impossible because these kids aren't really at the stage that they think they should be. 
Yes, and that's what I'm hearing time and time again from teachers is that they are dealing with things that they would normally deal with in younger years and having to spend so much time and energy with that. So I was reading one of your papers, and I love your articles because they're to the point, they're clear, but they also give you a sense of, ah, Andrew gets it, he understands. And there was an opening paragraph about the interesting times we're living in and really highlighting that more and more students are really moving towards this feeling of being risk adverse. And that really links into what you've shared so far. How does that manifest in the classroom? So we know that basically in terms of the world of mindsets, the research has gone beyond the fixed and growth kind of paradigm to a three mindset model where we have anxious mindsets, we have resilient mindsets, and we have avoidant mindsets. And both anxious and avoidant are different expressions, of course, of anxiety. But the avoidant one is the one that is most evident, really. So it's, it's, and I think it's a trend right across the world. I think it's just the kids where people sort of step out rather than step in. They kind of, oh, well, I could do it. Maybe I'll do it. I might show up. You know, it's sort of a world where things are just all a bit optional, really. Oh, well, maybe. I'll try, <laughs> really. There's not much commitment or follow through. And so it becomes incredibly frustrating, of course, because, you know, you know, that's not really the way life ultimately works. So, but there are then, of course, a group of kids who just basically pulled the plug on, I'm not going to have a go at that, I'm not trying that. And so a couple of years of being able to opt out has sort of empowered them in a, in a cautious, anxious, negative way not to be people who have a go at stuff. And so if there's a real need, it's to basically build a culture in a classroom. It's okay to have a go. It's okay to get things wrong. And it's not just an intellectual one. It's an emotional one. So we can't just convince kids of this. We have to create the circumstances where we get people safe enough, really, to feel that they can have a a go at things and maybe it doesn't work out the way they hope and that will be okay. That is so true, that concept of an opt-out lifestyle, like, oh, it's getting a bit hard now, getting a bit tricky, I'm just going to opt out now, I'm just going to stop, or, you know, it was getting a bit tricky in that sports game, it was all getting a little bit serious, I'm getting uncomfortable, I'm just going to avoid it now, it's too hard for me. That's a real interesting thing, because I think traditionally we've seen particularly young Australians being associated with a, oh, I'll have a go, you know, and give other people a go, and, you know, they were the the country who would sort of often travel around the world and kind of have all those weird Kentucky tours and, you know, things that were kind of... And that spirit of exploration and trying things out, you know, I remember hearing a story of... Uh, at, they set up a, a jousting competition at the Tower of London where, you know, people would get on horses and wear their masks and have their lance and that. And uh, at the end of it, they all kind of took their masks off and they were all Australians, you know, those wild Aussies. And we've become a very different population now, a very cautious one, a one that wants to play it incredibly safe. And uh, maybe there were some downsides to the jousters as well, so we you know, try to glorify necessarily them. But we do need to build a culture of having a bit of courage, I think, in our young people and ourselves too. Yes, and I know myself as an adult, there are times where I'm avoiding things. I'm feeling like I want to opt out. This is too hard. This is too much. 
And so I can only imagine what it's like for our young people who've missed major milestones in their social network when things get a little bit tricky because it is hard. So I think one of the costs of the last couple of years has been dislocation. And dislocation, of course, is the opposite of belonging. So there's some dangers in that for well-being. But it means that if we have these people who are slightly disconnected from their friends, from their from uh, educators, really a lowering of trust, then we have to consciously go about rebuilding good relationships because it's only really when you're with people who you believe have your back, who aren't going to criticize you or sort of you know, snipe at you, that kind of stuff, that essentially you build the, the, the confidence of having a go, which is why you know, creativity, of course, doesn't occur in a context of criticism. So, you know, for, it's the same thing, isn't it? That basically to be adventurous, we need to be courageous. And to be courageous, we need to feel that even if I really muck this up, you know, the people around me are going to go, oh, yeah, well, have another go. It'll be okay. And that's really important. And what that requires, of course, are educators who themselves feel free to do that. And that is where the, the pinch point is because we've, I think foolishly, foolishly rushed back into what was rather than trying to embrace what could be in terms of schools and education. And that, I think, is a tragedy and a mistake because it's not working. All the evidence in terms of school attendance, school engagement really tells me that all of those things are down. Behavioural difficulties are up and I think teacher stress is also incredibly up. Yes, and that tension of teachers wanting to experiment or wanting to do things differently, but then they don't want to be seen as doing the wrong thing, so maybe just play it safe and do what we've always done because that's not going to bring up this discomfort for us as well as educators. Where you are in Geelong, uh, I basically had a, a strong hand in reconstituting the timetable of two large schools. And this hit the press in a fairly big way. And of course, the parents were really quite threatened by the changes because what we were doing was really lessening, for senior students as was, the amount of uh, contact time like midweek on Wednesdays. And basically, it really actually wasn't much of a change in terms of total hours of, of education, but it was basically trying to build a sense of autonomy among the young people and restructure schools so that kids were more likely to engage and, and come along. And, of course, the early research from the students has been fantastic, but the parents was interesting because they were the ones uh, that were really quite up in arms about it initially. Yes, and that makes sense because we get so used to doing what we've always done. And so when things are different and maybe when we've got low resources and just getting by anyway, when there's a change, it feels just intolerable to move towards it. So it's important, I think, to realise that what worked in 2019 does not work now. And so even our way of approaching well-being in schools has changed dramatically. Our way of understanding behaviour has changed and our way of understanding effective learning. And partly that's because of all of the research that's come out, but partly it's also because we are dealing with a different type of generation who've been threatened some might say traumatised, in a different way. And unless you change your game plan, you're just setting yourself up for failure. 
This is what I'm curious to understand. As we're seeing all these new trends, as there's these new pressures, the way that we teach needs to adapt and shape and change. How is that impacting today's educators? The job ultimately is impossible. And I think that's really important to be honest about. So there's sort of, for many educators, there's a mythology that somehow I'm going to get it all done by Friday night, right? You know, I've, I've been guilty of this in the past. I, I remember working at the hospital and I was bemoaning that I hadn't got everything done, you know, by Friday. And a very wise <laughs> secretary called me over and she looked at me very sternly and she said, God takes you when you've got everything done. <laughs> and I'm ever thoughtful of that comment because really we're, that's not the sort of gig we're never in the business of kind of finishing. We're also, this is an ongoing kind of process. So every day there's always something different, which is the joy of working with kids. It's the joy of teaching or the joy of kind of doing the sort of psychology stuff I do is that we're always confronting different kind of scenarios. So it's not about necessarily ticking things off lists. It's about enjoying the process. But I but I witness a system that basically seems to become more and more focused on administration, you know, completion of that accountability, which just frankly sucks the soul and the artistry out of education. Yes, the artistry, because the best educators I've had the privilege of watching in action, it is art. It is magic to see them in their flow and, and having a whole class literally in the palm of their hand. It is magic. It is a craft that we build over time. That's right. And I think that's very hard to teach people how to do, but it's partly impossible to do if you don't help people to be free enough to be themselves. Because ultimately, it's about knowing that the person that you're with, ideally, in this case, a teacher, is an authentic person who has integrity. They're not going to basically slice you. They're not going to basically have a go at you if you don't get it right. They're not going to basically be nasty and all that kind of stuff, they have the wherewithal to support you, to coach you towards a good outcome. And that means, of course, that they themselves are supported sufficiently to feel enabled to do that. Because if they're always under the pump trying to reinvent the past rather than create the future, they're just exhausted. Yeah, feeling under the pump, constantly trying to get on top of that list, it's really a mirage. It's never done. And understanding that for yourself is just empowering, you know, to go, okay, this isn't about getting it done. It's about enjoying the journey. And that is such a skill that we can develop over time. And also I'm thinking about school leaders and heads of department, how we can move towards that experience where what progress are we making? We know we're not going to get everything sorted. We're not going to cross all the T's and dot all the I's. There's going to be unit plans that aren't quite finished. but how can we bring back this joy in the process and the laughter in education? It's interesting. I quite often get invited to speak to the staff in schools about well-being, staff well-being, and I usually walk in and the staff roll their eyes <laughs> and they look like they want to vomit into a bucket. And it's because what they're expecting is for somebody to say, I want you to manage your stress and I want you to smell some lavender and go and have a long bath and go for a walk. And, and I can completely understand why they might feel that way in terms of negatively about it because, of course, it's almost saying 
you you know you are the person who has to fix this and it's not i mean there is an individual part of well-being obviously it's important but there's also a systems part and the systems part is critical because if a system is not necessarily functioning well then it doesn't matter how many long baths you take or how much lavender you smell it ain't gonna fix it right um now we do talk about the the this mitochondria and we talk about cellular resilience so it's kind of really fascinating for start but we also talk about how do you create a system or a community that basically has at its very heart well-being and that the idea that well-being is everyone's business rather than being a side issue because if the people aren't thriving or well i mean overall we all have our ups and downs of course then we can't learn well we can't live well yeah and it's so good that we're bringing this conversation to staff because for years we've been focused solely on student well-being it's all about the student student centered student first we do everything for the student and it is so good to hear now that many more schools are bringing staff into the equation how can we better support our teachers? What can we do differently to support our teachers? And we do have a long way to go, but it's lovely to know that there are more and more conversations that are starting in schools. Human beings are territorial creatures. And so they learn very quickly what the pitch is. So a little kid learns very quickly about the fact that what I can get away with at home is different from what I can get away at grandma's or granddad's place, right? And they, they play to it. They're, you know, they're shrewd. They're, they're smart kids, you know, and, and they work out the lay of the land and they, they do so accordingly, which is why most parents have had the experience of a kid being an absolute monster at home. And then they go on a sleepover and the other person says, oh, they were such a delight to have. And you go, really? So one of the number one things that would improve learning outcomes and improve behavior and reduce teacher stress would be to have teachers, particularly in secondary schools, own classrooms. Because once you've got your classroom, this is my domain. You are coming in to my domain, and this is how it goes here. Not in a nasty kind of, you know, absolutely on the boss and nothing else that can be considered. But when in families and in schools, basically they, the kids function best when they can pretty much rely on what the big guy or girl says, right? So when the big guy or girl sort of says, you know, we're going to go out and go shopping or go to the park or something, you can pretty much trust them that it's going to be okay, right? And that works in a family and it works well in terms of education as well. When I know that basically the teacher says, we're going to do this for 10 minutes and then we're going to change and we're going to go and do something else, that's how that magic starts to occur because kids feel safe enough to trust their educator and the educator also feels in, in control enough of their domain, their territory, to create. But what we have is this crazy world where everybody basically, it's like musical chairs, isn't it? The bell goes and everyone changes rooms. Who invented this madness? This, absolutely. <laughs> I just, you know, there are times, I'm not, I'm not an educator, but there are times I... I go to schools and scratch my head and go, what, the, what are they all doing? It is so interesting that you bring that up, Andrew, because now I'm giggling to think that is so true. Bells go or there's a time and all of a sudden it's like ants. Everyone's just scrambling to new spots. And as that's happening, you're also expected to be on yard duty at that same minute at a different part of the campus. And it is a little bit chaotic just in the structure of it. That's right. And so... 
you've got this sort of chaotic kind of frenzied racing around the school. Maybe it's good for fitness. I mean, maybe there's some pluses. I'm I'm sure there may be some, but the discombobulation. I mean, and then of course, what you've got on top of that are all these neurodiverse kids. And of course, what we know about neurodiversity, there's lots we can talk about, but one of the things that they generally don't do well are transitions between, you know, moving between classrooms and people and that kind of stuff. It takes a while to settle. And so I don't know of anyone who's done the ergonomic studies to basically look at how much time, you know, school day is soaked up by the current system of changing rooms all the time. And these are things that we just do without any awareness. It's just, this is what's happened when you're teaching in secondary, you get your timetable and you rush around to different rooms and you rush into that room and you, you know, hope to establish that classroom and hope to establish norms. It's sort of Airbnb, you don't really feel like you have your own space. Well, that's right. And so essentially, if you've got an educator and the educator, the bell goes, right, the educator had a runner quickly races, makes a couple of final comments that most of the kids don't listen to because they're half out of the room anyway. Um, then the educator has to pick up, pack up her books and sort of run or basically walk briskly to the other room and sort of set that up, hopefully before the kids have arrived. Because if the kids have arrived already, then it's sort of got to try to break into that peer culture. And that's tough work. And then we're expecting them to be less stressed, come on. Yes, there are so many things that we're doing that are working against educators. Then I'm just thinking about if schools are a workplace, like other people go to work, I don't think there are other workplaces where they're constantly going from office to office and place to place and trying to be established and ready to go and on top of it. Like we're actually, from that macro perspective, we're setting ourselves up to constantly feel rushed and urgent and behind. Even in corporations with a hot desk, I mean, they're only in there one or two days a week. Pick a desk for the day, not, not seven desks, as you rightly point out. So we've got this happening. We've got structural things that are happening. We've got student behaviours that are different to what we've seen before. We've also got that technology piece. I remember some of the videos that I sat through in senior science, you wouldn't dream of sharing anything like that now. A 40-minute monotone, boring, just would not happen. Everything has bells and whistles. How else is this impacting teachers and their job satisfaction, really? Well, to be a successful, happy teacher, you've got to have good relationships with the people you've got to spend most time with. And those people are your students. And so that if you are able to create good relationships with the majority of your students, let's get real about it, not everyone's going to do that, but if you can get the majority of them on side, then it's a pretty good job because in a way you've got all these little assistants who will do stuff that will kind of help out. Whereas if they're all again, yeah, <laughs> it's just hell on earth. And so that sort of early phase of the year, really when you build it up is and this is something i i wrote a, a book years ago called guerrilla tactics for teachers which i'm sort of currently i've been revising this year because i think uh, as i said before what worked in 2019 doesn't work now but setting up that culture of that classroom so that it works for you is incredibly powerful and it's not difficult it's actually i mean it, it does take some time but it's not really difficult to do because most kids want to be liked. And most kids 
well, some of this, the kids that basically are, are easy, you know, will, will attach to a teacher really quickly. The kids who are diffi more difficult, often by the time they get to school, they've generally had a hell of a morning. You know, they've had arguments and battles over getting there and, you know, all the stuff that goes on in too many families. And so getting to you as a teacher is a damn relief. And the way that you greet them and sort of say, oh, it looks like it's been a really tough morning, have a sit over there, recover a bit, and we'll, we'll get into it, basically. And, you know, it gives them some recognition for that. It makes an incredible difference. Yes. And so with all of these changes, it sounds like the one thing that hasn't changed and probably more important than ever is that ability to establish and maintain relationships with our students. Absolutely. With my good friend and colleague, John Henry, we work out sort of the, the major kind of five features of good relationships, which are trust and forgiveness, integrity, hope, and kindness. And um, putting those into place in any organization, family, or school makes an incredible difference, of course. But it does mean that and perhaps we, we, there's probably too much to go through all of them, but um, let's talk about hope for a moment, because hope, I think, is a really important one, and it's the antidote to despair. And lots of kids are pretty despairing. And I think one of the thoughts that I have is that kids have, over the last couple of years, kids are putting the hard yards, right? They've really worked hard at completing a lot of computer games, and they've developed their skills, you know, in a dramatic and admirable way. And now computer games, of course, are designed to build up dopamine, and Dopamine is the, the, the neurochemical of motivation. We can talk about that as well. But basically what happens in a game is they are bombarded with challenges, accomplishments, autonomy, choice, control, rewards, recognition, armory, points, weaponry, all the bells and whistles, right? And then they come into school and school often has basically is sort of trying to downplay feedback and go, good job, Meg. Looks like you worked really hard at that. It's a bit lame in comparison, don't you reckon? <laughs> really? That's right. And so the contrast of these two worlds, which one would you prefer? The one where you're getting all the whiz-bang sparklers or the one that's going, good job, Meg. You worked really hard at that. So we've got to change our game. Well, it's easy in a way because in some ways we've got to basically find uh, uh, the kids' learning strengths. That's really critical. It's been fascinating to me over the years that schools were very interested in character strengths but not so interested in learning strengths, and yet learning is their main business. So we've remedied that. And 45,000 kids last year did the learning strengths analysis and, and more this year, and it's just incredible the feedback that I get from kids. And then talk about how to build upon those. That's the first part of it. And then we've got to work out how to become more effusive in terms of our, our feedback because I don't know what's happened. It's a, a very interesting world that we live in in terms of the messaging around what feedbacks. And it's a major sort of conundrum to me as an outsider to education that, um, well, I, I'm not sure whether you, it's something you want to go into, Meg, but it, it could take a bit of time. So I'll just say it's a, it's a, it's a major issue for educators about how to to provide that feedback to counter or enthuse kids. Yes, absolutely. I think it's something that I know I experienced as an educator 
sometimes with assessment feeling like my hands were tied. I didn't want to say exactly what I needed to say because I would have been in trouble or someone said, oh, you can't actually say that to a student. You've got to make sure it's positive and it's going to be upbeat. And so I think there are real challenges with the way that we give feedback and I'm not sure if it's helping. No, I suppose I, I guess the two major players in terms of feedback are Albert Bandura and self-efficacy and uh, Carol Dweck. Now, Albert Bandura's work basically says, Meg, if I tell you that you're good at riding a bike and you believe that you're good at riding a bike, your skill at riding a bike will improve. That's pretty clear research, right? Self-efficacy is going to increase performance. Carol Dweck, on the other hand, says if I tell you that you're, going to, you're good at riding a bike, you're going to freeze up and worry about being a perfectionistic bike rider and will become reluctant to do anything more. So these two are at chalk and cheese in many ways. They're at arm's length and they don't agree. And I've been fascinated by that and thinking, okay, well, maybe they're both right. There are some kids for whom, if I tell them that they're basically fantastic, uh, that they will freeze up and they'll become perfectionistic. But there's another whole other bunch of kids who don't think they're fantastic, that unless somebody is prepared to say, hey, Meg, you're great at that. You're, that's a really great drawing. You know, you've really got some skills in this area. You could basically develop it even further by doing blah, 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 blah. Then you don't ever get it. And I think part of the big, again, there are two things. One is that we've got these kids who've been used, accustomed to high levels of positive feedback through computer games. And the second one is that there are a whole lot of kids that I see in my therapy room who no one's ever told them they're smart. They don't, they don't think they're smart. They think they're dumb. And we need to challenge that and be the antidote to it. And really getting more nuanced in our feedback instead of thinking, well, this is how I'm going to give feedback to the whole class, thinking about individuals and what do they need and what works for them and I'm thinking about me as a coach. When I was coaching certain students, there were ones that really did thrive on specific feedback and going a little bit firmer and other ones that needed much more boosting and encouragement because their internal dialogue was so harsh and critical. They didn't need me adding to it. No, that's right. And so, and there are some that like public recognition. And I've, so, so one of the things that I think about is love languages. Because I think love languages is a really interesting kind of idea. And I think that we have feedback languages as well, really. So there are some people love public recognition. Yeah, you know, did really well. Other people are just mortified by that and would hate it, right? And so you just got to then work out. You're absolutely, that word nuanced is absolutely on the money. That's what we need to do. And that means that the teacher needs to know her students well. And that means the teacher has to have the, the, uh, the context and the time to know them well. Yes, and this is where that tension pops up again when we're scurrying around like ants going from room to room. How do we get to know our students well? That's right, exactly. So in a way, we've got to then develop a community whereby we're not running a sort of race of sort of psychiatric crises. <laughs> we're actually running a learning organisation which is incrementally going to help people to progress towards a good outcome. And also maybe that sharing of knowledge around students. So when we are doing handovers, a little bit more holistic, not just the issues that they've had, but thinking about this is the way I've been giving feedback. They seem to really rise to this, you know, let's experiment with this further. And, and so each year 
we are sharing that knowledge so teachers aren't starting from scratch all the time. Yeah, so a strength profile for kids would be a great thing to do, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. So tell us more about those learning strengths. That sounds really interesting. So essentially in the last couple of years, research has moved from a functional base, as in where in the brain do particular functions occur, to a more kind of information processing focus. So basically we know that most of the major functions of the brain don't involve one part of the brain, they're a circuit. So literacy, for example, requires you to basically interconnect Broca's area and sort of the side of your, your left side of your frontal lobes with Wernicke's area, the left side of the rear of your temporal lobes, and there's nifty part behind your ear called the ventro-occipital temporal region. These three bits get together, they communicate, they form a circuit, and you can read. Okay? And so basically then what happens is that you have these particular circuits in your brain that process information. Some of them are myelinated, which means they speed up thinking. Others are unmyelinated, which means they're slower. So for all of us, we have about 60% of our brain is myelinated, which last time I did my maths, I figure out that about 40% is not. So it tells you something you've always known. This is, this is hardly rocket science, but it's good to know that science has caught up with your own knowledge, that you're good at some stuff that other people aren't much good at, and they're good at some stuff that you're not much good at. Hallelujah, goodness me. Let's, let's hit the front page. Um, okay, so, so we are, have different brains, and that means we have different capacities. Now, that doesn't mean that's all you can be, but if we can identify an area, Meg, that you're really good at and make more of it, or even best, better to cross-fertilize that into another area where maybe you're not so great on, then we build up your self-efficacy. We build up your sense of success. And so thinking that way makes an incredible difference. So increasing these schools, ask parents to, to go on mylearningstrengths.com and complete this either on behalf of their students or with them and bring it to a parent-teacher meeting so that the meeting isn't about what went wrong over the past term, but indeed what strengths we shall build on in the next term, together, at home and at school. So we're not just talking about parental engagement, we're living it, and we're saying there's lots of things. So let's say we have a, a kid who's pretty good in terms of language and word smarts or number smarts, but they're not so good at planning. It might be that we'll talk about graphic organizers at school, but maybe could we involve them at home in doing some planning to build a skate ramp or build a kite or, you know, whatever it could be. So that essentially you're then aiming together, the adults in that child's life or teen's life, are building to increase their learning strengths. There is so much value in understanding that for the individual, I think about myself as a student, if I had that kind of language and knowledge and understanding, and then also for the teachers to have that language, knowledge, understanding, which flows on to the parents, it is just so much more that we can hold on to as learners, as creating learning communities to have this vital information. Yeah, I think it's often said that we learn more from our failures than our successes, and I disagree. I think we learn better more from our successes, and they become contagious in our lives. And all of us have winning games, 
And if we can learn what that is, that's metacognition. And metacognition was talked about, well, very recent concept. I mean, um, the Oracle of Delphi talked about it, you know, know thyself. <laughs> so, and that's the basis of well-being, isn't it? That if you can know yourself, know what you're good at, you know, know maybe what you're not so good at, and okay, we don't have to necessarily limit ourselves by just going to the things we're good at. But at the same time, if we can start there, we're going to have a sense of success. And then if we have a sense of success, we build our self-efficacy. And so then for we're going to be more courageous, which means that we become less avoidant, which means we become more involved. Yes, and then we come full circle. As we're building that self-awareness, as we're building this self-knowledge and understanding, we can lean into difficult things. We're not as likely just to opt out when things get tough. We're not as likely to just avoid when things are really tricky or be adverse to risk. So there is so much available to us as educators, even to parents listening, around understanding our young people, understanding their context, which is so different to the context that we went to, and how can we build that bridge through relationships. To wrap up this incredible conversation, Andrew, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Maybe. (laughs) I am inspired by... Science. I think that the science behind behavior, which we haven't barely touched on, I apologize, uh, is remarkable. And the science in terms of the neurochemistry that basically drives brains has the capacity to improve schools and improve the lives and the work and the impact of teachers. When life feels hard? Do something different, really, I guess. it's. I started out my career in psychiatric crisis teams. So I'd be on bridges and in sieges with people who are having desperate moments. And it wasn't so much about basically trying to solve the problem. It was just saying, maybe we can look at this a different way, you know? So I used to, in those situations, come up to people, quite worried myself about the effect of doing that, and just say, you know, do you mind? Yeah, it's, you must be surprised that life has led you to this point. Would you mind just talking about it with me for a bit? And everybody, fortunately, said, yeah, yeah, that would be good to do. And they, and I was very lucky. Nobody ever did anything desperate. But uh, it is important at times to have more than one string to your bow. An underrated skill is? Fun, laughter, creativity. I mean, we all like yeah, we're a bit scared of having fun. It's all a bit serious at the moment, you know, and um, it's, it's it's sort of frowned upon, like it's a bit lightweight to be have fun, um, and yet we all secretly love it. And I am looking forward to... I really look forward to watching as schools... I mean, I I'm, I'm, sounds malevolent, but I mean, schools are retreating as rapidly as they can into the past. And I know that's not going to work. So I know that there's a crisis coming. It's probably already arrived. Um, So what I'm looking forward to, and I'm hoping that not too many educators are the the damaged people as a result of this, in schools finally facing up to the fact that we have to reinvent. Yes. And you have given us so much inspiration today, Andrew, as you have for years and years. I still remember being a pre-service teacher and going along to one of your talks and being so inspired and so engaged in the conversation. And that's what you've done 
today. So thank you for continuing to show up and get excited by the science so you can share it with all of us so we can learn and grow. And thank you for being guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. An absolute honour and a delight. Thank you, Meg. Andrew's latest book, The A to Z of Feelings, How to Make Your Emotions Work for You and Not Against You, is now available online and in store. Thank you for listening to this episode of the best of 2023. And I look forward to returning with new episodes of the School of Wellbeing from Friday the 19th of January. Until next time, take care and take deliberate action.